0: to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and in history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, you can continue this discussion on the thefvergenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact... Please like both pages. So what will come tomorrow? Have you searched for records and finally found that special person you have been looking for? So what? What does the record tell you? Is this all that you need? Well, I'm so happy to have Dr. Shelly Murphy, a.k.a. Family Girl, on tonight for a discussion of the So what concept? So what? That's right. So what is a concept used in the Midwestern African American Genealogy Institute to help analyze genealogical records and resources? The goal is to question the value of the evidence and plan the path to new leads and discoveries. Shirley Murphy. Is a native of Michigan. She has been an avid genealogist for over 25 years, researching a host of individuals on her various family lines. She attends and presents at local and national conferences and currently works for a nonprofit and serves as adjunct faculty at Everett University. In addition, Shelley is a founding member, member and current president of the Afro American Historical and Genealogical Chapter of Central Virginia. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Shelley Murphy to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Doctor Murphy. Hello, Bernice in the chatters. How are you? Oh just doing wonderful and I am really looking forward to this discussion about so what. So you know everyone is curious about what is the so what activity you use at Maggie. So why don't you give us an idea of just what you're talking about when you say so what? Well there's a lot of us that are conducting genealogy research and we're actually gathering documents and we scan through them, we're excited that we got it, you know, we got some new information, be it a death record or it might have been a marriage record, you know, uh, some slave document, inventory record or something, and it, you know, piques our interest, we're excited, it gets filed away, we move on looking for something else. So what we do at the Maggie Institute is analyze the record. So we're questioning what's on the record, do we have enough information because we want to make sure we're building a good solid research plan and you can only do that if you analyze the record. And I think a lot of people over the years that we're doing research, we end up collecting a lot of paper and never studying the information that's on there, what's either provided or what's missing, which would help us further our research on. Right, and some people just enjoy the hunt. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The hunt is the thrill. And and what we do is we take a record, like a death record, and we pick it apart cell by cell, asking the question, okay, we got this information, so what? What is that good for? What's it mean? How is that going to get me to another step? Or you got a cell on the document where something's missing, could be the mother's maiden name wasn't listed there and just the first name was there, but it says where she's from. So you know you got to go look for the maiden name. You know, that's the missing information. So then you start asking, okay, where is it, who would have it, you know, how can I access it, what other resources do I need so I can get down that path to find out what her maiden name is. So it's a simple technique, kind of fun, kind of silly, but we will remember it when we pick up a document so so every time we look at something you're saying even if it's the first line of a document we have to say so what so what question what's on there you got a name no middle name and a last name not everybody's going to have a middle name but there sure was a lot of us that did have a middle name so we're asking to value that okay i got a first name there's no middle name. I got a last name. But there might have been a pattern in your research where all the firstborn sons might have had a first name and a middle name. And here you're looking at a document. There's no middle name. That might be what's separating you from looking at an ancestor in some database because you're not looking for that middle name or that initial. So, again, questioning the information and You're you're continually like the genealogical proof standards. You want to pursue an exhaustive search to make sure that you're getting all the pieces of information that's out there. And a document could lead you to that if you question what's on it. And the so what is, okay, so what? They lived in Charlestown, West Virginia. Okay, why are they there? They were born somewhere else. You know, so you just keep asking. So what? Okay, let's keep going. So you're analyzing the information that's there and saying, what can I do with that? What else can I find out because of this piece of information? And it's been working. We have a lot of participants that were at Maggie last year that used that. And I know Angela Walton-Raji and, and I, you know, kind of play around with it. And we just keep questioning things as we're looking at it and saying, okay, what can we do with this? How do we make this, you know, bring us more information or let's start building that research plan. So now we have an organized plan of saying these are the things we're going after and where those resources might be at. Right. But, Shelley, what prevents people from taking it to the next level? I mean, you're saying... They should be asking the question, so what? But what about those people that feel, well, they have what they need? How can What's you get them to, to start thinking, well, maybe this isn't what I need? Well, one of the first things I would ask is, what is your goal in your research? Are you going to be a family historian and, and collect information and share the story? or are you actually researching to tell a story about the lives of these ancestors, yours or others, then you're going to have to go one step further. Just obtaining where people lived or them showing up on a census record is not exhaustive type research. You have to go a little deeper if you want to tell or share a story about what happened in a community. You can't just look at one person. A lot of people that are researching once they see a death certificate, they're done. I got them in the census. I got a marriage record and a death certificate. They're done. Well, wait a minute. What about did they own some land? You know, did they serve in the military? You know, what did they do? Did they go to school? What church were they in? So the more you ask questions on that level, you're going to build more as far as getting to a so what or build your research and then you got a picture. You've shared experiences with your ancestors. That's right, but let's look at somebody and and what you you mentioned, the research plan. So how do you begin to develop the research plan so that you automatically know that you're going to be
1: asking additional questions?
0: First thing I start with when we're teaching in workshops and things is we start with a timeline. That timeline is gonna document or have missing information year by year, whatever happened to that ancestor, in that community of that ancestor or that ancestor's family. So you're starting in for example, say a great great grandfather born eighteen oh six. So I start with his parents above him and then I get to 1806 when he was born and comes forward. Everything that happened in that community that might have related to him or linked to the area where they were at gets documented. This ancestor for an example was born in 1806 so the whole Civil War battles in Charlestown, West Virginia in that area, it was Virginia at the time happened all around him what were they doing so I am start documenting okay here's another baby born okay here's somebody getting married this is what happened John Brown came through what happened how far are they from John Brown so as I'm doing a timeline I'm also writing the story and what's missing or where my questions come up is where I start to build the research plan from so we actually have a column table that we're filling this information in, and then it's just going to, it starts jumping out at you. Wait a minute. There's a gap in here. There's nine years between this child and that child. Well, if there's nine years between birth and there's still babies coming, there had to be some death. Something happened in between there. And so you're, you're going to have to go look for more information. So I always start off with a timeline. So you're starting with a timeline. And then what about those people, those Shelley? They, they want an ancestor. They want to find that ancestor so bad that they leap over a whole lot of places and times to find that one ancestor in one place and time. They're missing out on a whole lot of information, unfortunately. Because there's things Mm -hmm. that could have happened in a community that you would have never known if you don't research the whole community and the whole family. You can't look at just one ancestor or the head of household. You have to Mm -hmm. research, you know, the siblings, the parents, their children, their grandchildren. You know, a lot of times you're going to gather information from the grandchild's death record or marriage record of your ancestor, not a record on the ancestor that will give you information. Or it could clarify some information. You're still going to have to research and try to document it. Because if there's missing information, you have to try to piece it together. And a lot of times, researching a community, what events were going on, on my timelines, every 10 years there's going to be a census. But if I'm researching in a state, that had state census, there's going to be more than just every 10 years. Because a lot of states, like Michigan, they had, or, or Iowa had a 1905, well, 1900 to regular population census. Then they had a 1905. Then they, the regular 1910 came in. But then they had a 1915 census. So I was able to track some um you know, a grandmother through the state census and not necessarily the federal census, population census. So they can't, if they miss information, they're going to miss a whole part of somebody's life. So setting what goal are you trying to achieve with your research? You don't want to just be a collector of paper and say, I got this. You're trying to share yes. that story. These stories are so important, just like the book that you and your, you know, um, partners wrote. You're sharing that story, you know, and you have yes. to know what was going on in the family and in the community and in the area that they were at. Absolutely, and I'm so glad that you said that. There's a comment coming out of the chat room, and this is Shannon saying, he see a lot of people conducting genealogical acrobatics with genetic data absolutely absolutely and and i'm going to tell you as far as dna if you don't study it how can you talk about it you have to understand <laughs> what's going on you know and and like in just regular research the acrobatics is happening and hopefully in places like the maggie institute or going to conferences or, or listening to local genealogy talks in your community, people will be sharing tips and things to help people stay focused and yearn for more and teach them new tools and ways like using so what. You know, I'm questioning the document. That actually came out of me teaching a workshop on how to write grants better. And I'm teaching people, like, if they're going to describe who's their target population, you know, that for a program, and... You know, kept breaking it down and breaking it down. So now, if I'm reviewing that grant, i got a picture of what they meant, of who they're talking about. So you want to tell that story so people can feel it. I remember you you quoted something or had in an article I read, you said when you held a piece of paper, and I think it was a, a bill of sale on one of your ancestors, you're so excited that you found it. But then you had other feelings after you, it hit you, What you really had it in your hand. You, you know, you get a that's different right. feeling on it. You know, even though we're excited about signing that document, but oh, my gosh, my ancestor was $850. You know, that, that's a different look than just saying I found it. Oh, and, and it takes you to a totally different place. Because Absolutely. you then start, you, you, you just start looking at the whole institution of slavery. And you start looking at your, how your ancestor was counted as part of the property. And then you start looking at the, the slave owner. Figure <laughs> so, it, it does take you in a totally, totally different place. Although, you know, you're doing the happy dance yes. because you found your ancestor, but then the dance has to continue. Because now you really have to look at, now, what do I have? What am I looking at? I would say, so what? you got a bill of sale. What does that mean? What happened? Where did they go? So what? I can remember at last year in St. Louis, one of the participants, you know, I asked a simple question. She had a document, and it was a document, and it was her ancestor who, who was a slave, and I simply said, was he the slave master's child? And it was this free paper. Mm-hmm. And she said, I don't think so. She had had that document for, I think, a couple years. I can't remember exactly. Then we went through the so what stuff on the board and, you know, playing around with it, analyzing some information. I got a call after St. Louis, and she had realized it had been staring at her the whole time, the whole time. It was right there. Mm-hmm. He was freeing them and he said, "My son." Mm-hmm. So if we don't analyze those records, she went back and she saw the words, "My son." But she had had it for a couple of years. So again, yeah. gathering that information, you got to question what's there, but you got to pick it apart and say, what do I have? What is right. the information you know, that's there? Why And and I just like, I like the fact that you're saying, so what? Because it's forcing people to say, I have this document in front of me. Now, what do I really have in front of me? And, you know, there's a statement coming out of the chat, when slaves do not have surnames and the slave owners have multiple slaves with the same first name, one must exercise critical thinking during the review process. That's the alternative to so what is using your critical thinking skills. That's exactly it. Didn't have to call it critical thinking. I said, so what? But the whole premise is the same. Each statement, each information, I call it sales on a document, you know, because like on a death certificate or a birth certificate, you know, everything is in their little blocks. I want to question it. I want to read about it. I also want to look at a document and say, "Well, why? What, what law was in place when this that made this document get, get created?" I believe every record creates a record. So, if there's a death record, and this is another exercise we walk through, is okay. I got a death record. What other records are created from a death record? You should ask your chatters and let them post some some things. Other records that are created just from a simple death record that we gather, and then I come back and say, "Okay, so what? You know, we got ten more things that's created from a death record. Now, what are you gonna do?" Okay, and Chatters, you know, we want to know that. You know, what are you gonna do with that? But you know, there's a, a, a comment coming out of the chat, and this is just an example. uh, Angela, she has an ancestor called Nancy. Mm -hmm. The slaveholders' estate mentions Big Nancy and Little Nancy, and both Mm -hmm. Nancys were adults. What do you do with that? (laughs) If they're both adults, I would be tracking for children and looking in the records and possibly Bible records or some other documents that might be associated with that plantation that could link to the family. Were they sold? Did they stay there? Were they slaves? You know, was there something that happened on a regular basis on that plantation that might be able to distinguish? Even the ages would help. If you can take the two Nancys and figure out, even though they're both adults, one might be 30 and one might be 40. That could be significant if one is still possibly having babies, not having babies, or someone's a grandma so i would keep asking questions and looking for information that might link back where she could distinguish or see whoever was asking the question to figure out if it was big nancy or little nancy and are they related cuz they might not even be related but they could just be on the on the plantation records yes yes and and, and they might both have the same name. Their Yeah, right. That's right. Well, well, there's another, uh, just a comment as far as records are concerned. One is a funeral record, and you mentioned the death certificate. Now, what kind of information can you tease out of a death certificate, and what can you tease out of, let's say, an obituary? Okay, so obituary is created from a death record. A funeral record is created from a death record. So that's two that they've come up with, excellent choices. A funeral record, you're going to get some information. All you have to do is think about the last time or if you were involved, someone passed in your family, what information did you have to give that funeral home? I'd like to know if the funeral home had any other records. Did they only serve, say, people of color in a community? Who was holding the records? Are there still records? Is that funeral home still alive? Google is always your friend. You can probably track back and get local community information if that funeral home is not still operating today. But you could get family ties or linkages, information, addresses, possibly some age-type information, because you're providing information to the funeral home. And so that information gets written down. Even as far back as into the 1850s and 60s or whenever. funeral homes always had records. The matter of finding if they're still existing. And a lot of times your funeral information and old bit information is definitely not in a newspaper. It's going to be in somebody's house in their Bible or up in a box or in a chest or something like that. So that's two records they came up with. Did they come up with any other ones? No, that's that's all I've seen so far. However, okay. this is the this is the question though. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, who is the informant? To me, would be a question to ask. So, what, who is the informant? Mm-hmm. I mean, is the informant a child of the deceased? Is the informant a neighbor of the de- deceased? That's the first thing I would certainly want to know because I think that would say something about the credibility of who is providing the information. Now I I have a a funeral program, excuse me, a death certificate and the death certificate lists the father of the, the person as one name yet I followed up because I questioned whether that really was the father and went to the person's social security application Well, she named her father because she was the informant, whereas the person who was the informant on the death certificate was her neighbor. And unfortunately, that is common. mm -hmm. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) that is common, Bernice, because that's why, again, number one, question that information, you went one step further to track that person down. You want to know how are they related to the deceased. Mm-hmm. Again, just like you mentioned, are they a neighbor? Well, they could be a daughter. It could be the wife. On my great-grandparents, the wife was an informant on Govan Carrington's death record, and she said he was born in South Carolina. Well, I got three other locations on three other documents That say he was born in three other places. Now, she's the wife I would like to think that she would know where her husband was born. They had been married for 40 years. Well, I end up finding a record just last year, a death record of one of their children, and he was the informant on that child. This is Govan. And Govan said that he was born in Tennessee, in not South Carolina, like his wife said. I have to go with Bovan <laughs> with his own information, because he was the informant on his daughter's death record, and that's where he said he was born. So there was a conflict right there. I could have, as many of us will do, went with what the wife said looking at the death certificate, and it said Greenville, South Carolina, that's what's at that, the um, cemetery. That's the information in that record. But when he said, when he listed, it's listed as an informant, and he says, I was born in Tennessee, and I think it was County, Tennessee, I, I'm going to go with that until something else presents itself. Because that kind yeah. of fonts everything else. Because I'm questioning, okay, well, that's him. He, more than anybody, should know where he's born. And and what what I did find out yeah. later, he, he I'm sorry. Huh? I was just saying yes. He should know, or perhaps someone told him this is where you were born, and that's what he <laughs> always said. And maybe, they, maybe well, another thing. But another thing to link ahead. up was in the 1870 census when he was five years old. That was in the county where he supposedly had been born. So that was another way to say, you know, I've got some evidence here that's going to point to this. But it was a strong point, the fact that he was his informant on his daughter's death record. But what if it would have been a neighbor? They could have been, you know, it could have been that it's only hearsay what they were told. Or maybe there was only a child alive and they're asking about their father and said, well, where was your daddy born at? You know, and it's going to be whatever they heard of, you know, in conversation. So that's why you have to go a step further, question and analyze this information. Once you get a document, talk to it. You need to question what's on there. Validate it. That's right. That's right. Well, I had a very interesting uh, uh, situation. I had an aunt to tell me that my grandfather's mother died when he was young. Well, it wasn't until 2012 that I found a delayed birth certificate for him. Mm-hmm. And the informant on the delayed birth certificate said she was the midwife who delivered him. And so she could vouch for the date he was born, and mm-hmm. she could vouch for the date the mother died. I had never seen that document before, and I was going by oral, his- by, by oral history. But then I fa- actually found the document. And, and, and so then sometimes we have to go to the primary, you know, the person yeah. who was the eyewitness who was standing there and watched the child, birth, the birth take place, I would give that person more credibility than anybody else because they were there and they were an eyewitness. That's a primary source. Absolutely. And you want to realize that evidence that you have, that that's a little more reliable versus something else. You don't want to forget about that other information. Or, say, the oral history. Because a lot of times, over time, oral history kind of changes. It gets a different little flavor. And it's not our job as family historians or genealogists, you know, to actually dispute it. We're only bringing forth the evidence. And documenting right. the time and sharing the story. I'm not going to go to a uh, 85 year old and say, "No, your oral history that you heard as a child is incorrect." You know, but what I will say here's some other information, and let's look at this and see. Well, the time is right, you know, and maybe again, it, just like we do an exercise. When you think of Michigan, you think of Detroit. You think of New York City, you think of New York, you know. If I'm thinking about Pennsylvania, the first thing I'm going to think about is Philadelphia, not Chambersburg or, you know, some other city. So there's so many things that happen that we get so accustomed to hearing that that's going to come down over generations. And I'm never going to sit there and dispute somebody's oral history versus document. I just present it all. Because there could be tidbits and pieces out of there, and that's a a great technique when you're interviewing someone and doesn't even have to be an elderly person. But when you're interviewing them, you're not going to challenge them. You want to let them talk. You have to learn how to shut up when you're interviewing for, you know, oral history. You want to just gather the information and, and throw out what you're doing and ask one question and then just... Sit back and and people will start talking, you know. Because you want right. to hear it from their perspective. Yes, you do because there, there's going to be something that you're going to pick up. Yeah, and it's going to make you say, "So what?" Oh, yeah. you're going to have some gems that you're going to take that that one step further. And you know what? We're going to take a break, but we have a lot of folks in the chat. And Chatters, what I want you to do is start giving us some examples. We're going to talk about some of these examples of so what and how you took it to the next level because we're talking about an exhaustive search. We're not talking about data mining and just collecting and never analyzing. And so we're going to take this quick break, come back, and continue this discussion, okay? Sounds good. Mm -hmm. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find the archive shows on my website, geniebroots.com. You have been listening to Dr. Shelley Murphy discuss and so what will come tomorrow? And this is what we're talking about. So what, everybody? Now, Dr. Murphy, I'm going to turn it back over to you, but there's just so much going on. And there's a question, and, and this is from Kanetta. And Kanetta's uh, comment on question, why did the slaveholder keep Elijah 2 additional years after his manumission? So this is a question that she asked. So I'm going to just say what she said. She located an additional petition to the court for Elijah's release. Also, she discovered four freedom suits in Missouri against Elijah's slaveholder father. She asked the question, why did he keep Elijah two additional years? And that made her go further into her research she actually used the so what technique and again it's an exhaustive search you want to look at documents is that evidence reliable so if she's questioning why did he keep him an extra two years and she finds four more suits against him i would be asking did he have the skill that was needed on that plantation, number one. What part, what role did he play that might have caused him to stay a couple of years? He could have been the blacksmith or the carpenter, you know, or something in a specialty field that that plantation owner did not want to let him go. Another question would be, again, was he worth more? And I'm now talking about dollar value look around and look at other records of him selling people. Did he do the same thing or was it only Elijah that had to stay a couple extra years? And start questioning motives of why he's done that. And then I would look at his records and see if, it, if there was some, you know, similar situations. Was he doing it to all of the slaves? What value did that one individual... Make that man want to keep him for a couple extra years. That's where I would start questioning again and looking at those oh. lawsuits also. Yes. So, every, and every single lawsuit is going to add more information. It should. It should. Mm-hmm. But then again, we all have genealogists, and all of us have been doing this. We also have to accept the fact that at some time there absolutely might not be a record. And that's where we'd have to come back and try to rebuild what was going on. We might not get an actual document, but maybe we can bring other records and use them as points of reference to be able to gather a little closer to whatever our goal is of either documenting, again, what did he do those last two years he was there before he was free? Is there a yeah, p- way to hard. find that out and see? And again, so you're going to rebuild. A lot of people struggle because the 1890 census is not available. Well, there was other things going on besides a uh, once-every-ten-year population census that went on in a community where your ancestor might have been. So I would start questioning what else were they doing. Were they working? Was babies still being born? Were people still dying? you know, to document, and do they own property, not own property. And so you can rebuild that time frame and then even try to shrink that gap from 10 years, maybe down to two or three years, focusing in on other records that linked to your ancestor and to their community. So, again, it's challenging what's before you, the information. You're actually doing a genealogical proof, standard because you are wearing out the information. You're questioning the value. That's the so what. I know it sounds silly, but it could give you a conclusion or at least a point that you can document until something else presents itself. Right. And I mean, I like that because it just forces you to do it. I want to give you an example of of something that I... uh, discovered. First of all, I discovered that my ancestor was a homesteader,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I, after I read the records, I saw witnesses. Now, I immediately started asking, who are these people? You know, what relationship did they have with my ancestor? Were they also African American? Were they also homesteaders? Mm-hmm. And as, for each question I would ask and I would find additional information, I was able to actually reconstruct the entire community. And those, those names, just following up with that information. Uh, so one of the, the concerns I have, though, is that people will find out, oh, the ancestors are homesteaders. Oh, my ancestor filed for an uh, invalid uh, pension on the mm-hmm. USCT and filed for an invalid pension. Lucky me, but they don't read the record and they do not analyze the record. So there's just something that we have to just say to people constantly, and I love it, so what? So what? And I think it's so valid because we love what we're doing, and we do have challenges when we're researching people of color, no doubt. You know, there's different sets of records that might be out there, but as Judy Russell always references, you got to know what laws were also in place at the time. Why was that yes. record created? So you even have to go a, a step further because you can't just get, And I'm going to use the death record again. You can't just get the death record and say, I'm done. Wait a minute. You're trying to tell a story here about your ancestor, you know, enslaved or free. You're trying to tell the story. Well, you don't stop when they die. There must have been, might have been children. There could have been, you know, like I said, the blacksmith. Going back to Conetta's ancestor. To keep them the extra two years could be just out of, you know, thinking about a special occupation, like I was thinking of a blacksmith. That is a huge value. Think of Thomas Jefferson and those little kids that were making those nails. And he was counting every one of the nails those children were making because that was money. Yeah, he would probably try to keep them as, you know, or keep their parent or whoever a little longer to keep that money coming because as as Cinder Stanton's book says, those who labored for my happiness. So you want Mm -hmm. to ask more questions. You're going to have to dig a little deeper, and that's why it's good to pick apart these documents. And the, the simple ones are your birth, death, and marriage record, and also looking at the census. I used to teach people to go five, ten pages front and back, you know, looking for their ancestors to see who's there. No, do the whole community the whole township, yeah. because nine yeah. times out of ten, you got other relatives right down the road, and they might be not on those five or ten pages, and I did that for years teaching, you know, people were just getting started. No, you have to research the whole community. You have to understand what was going on. You have to know the history of that community in order to understand what was going on in your ancestor's life, so there is more work to do. And it's fascinating, but the more you find, the more you want. So the so what comes in again, you know, and you're trying to, if you have something that's conflicting, questioning and analyzing that document just might be the thing that gets you out of that conflict, that helps you resolve it. And that comes part of that genealogical proof standard. We are really trying to do an exhaustive search. What evidence do we have? We're questioning the information on the evidence. Can that information lead us to another step to finding more information? Because we're still trying to tell the story. You're trying to tell the story. And I like the fact that the community is part of your story. It's yeah. not just that one ancestor and, you know, I've had other shows, Who's in the House and Cluster Genealogy, mm-hmm. because you're, you're, you're not just looking at that one person. I mean, I know there are those who really want to get their pedigree charts together. But Mm -hmm. to get your pedigree chart together, you do also need to think about, well, what's going on in that community? What's happening to that family? Why are family members missing? Where did they go? Were they a part of a great migration? I mean, there's so many questions that you can ask. And just just by the fact, you know, I, I can even tell you an example. I have a family that I found in 1870 with one name and couldn't find them anymore and had to go back. I found them in the Freedom Bureau record with the right surname and came back to the 1870. looked up and down the block and saw that everybody was named Johnson. You <laughs> know, <laughs> 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 and, and you know, so I said, well, so what? I said, well, whoever put down those names automatically assumed that everybody probably were on the Johnson plantation once upon a time and they were all given that surname, but it wasn't the right surname. So the question then comes in, well, so what? Well, what do I have to look for? If you can't find your ancestor, what do you start looking for? And when they say they can't find their ancestor, what do they start looking for? If they have an area, they're going to start researching information in that area, number one. And again, you're going to look for the surname. If you don't find their surname but you know they're there, what is telling you that they were at that location? Uh-huh. Tell me yes. what's there. What is telling uh-huh. you that I know they're there? You know, because it could just be simply a misspelling. And you got to remember yes. that spelling yes. doesn't even count, you know, when you're <laughs> looking through these older records. So, again, That's if right. you think they're there, then you need to go find them. And if you don't That's find them good. there, you need to come up and say, well, where else could they have been? based on other information that you might have because there could be descendants or or you know the difference of someone being in north carolina versus south carolina you know or they could have been on a border town and and that will drive you crazy (laughs) if you're researching and you got a border town so you have to go in a little bit deeper start digging away asking a few more questions and start finding bits of evidence to piece together to give you some form of a picture to say, wait a minute, he wasn't there. He's actually right here. Then you start looking there, piecing it together. Number one, we know people get get married, you're going to have birth, you're going to have death, and you're always going to pay taxes. I don't care where you're at. You're either going to serve in the military or you're not but you might have supported some things in the military, you know, what was going on. Was the railroad being built in that area, you know, was somebody on the crew? Because a lot of people, you know, worked across the, the country and never had a solid place. But then again, I might check employer records. If I knew someone worked for the train or, you know, on the railroad, I'd start accessing railroad records. If somebody was in the war, I'm looking for pension number one. You know, if I already know that they were in the war, I want to find about, you know, did they get a pension? Why would I ask that question? Here's another so what. Because people had to say what they knew about my ancestor. It took one of my ancestors 40 years to get his pension. And I read the affidavits everywhere someone that was interviewed or had to come forth and sign on the, you know, on the record that they knew who this person was and this is what his state of health was. And also then the wife came along and she had to do the same thing. So, again, you're questioning what you're missing, you're questioning what you have to bring that together and come up with some piece of evidence that might be reliable for you, at least that you can interpret until something else presents itself. And, again, sometimes there is no record. Absolutely. Right. We have to accept that as a genealogist. A lot of people are, Angela Walton Raji, we were talking about some slave research a week or so ago. And she said, you know, both of us were talking about where we had some challenges. And she said her difficult on some of her lines was, you know, in the movie Roots, she talked about Kizzy was on that wagon. And, what, you know, when mm-hmm. she was being sold and her parents were screaming and she's leaving and riding off, Angela said, that's where my ancestors were. How do I track mm-hmm. that? How do we do that? so we, ha- we can get her on the other end, but what happened in between? What was that path That's that right. was going on? Did she have two masters? Right. How many times was she sold? Were any babies born? You know, was there any mm-hmm. stories that came down that might give a little glimmer of evidence for her to go after? Where, where in my right. case, I had white ancestors that had slaves, and I had an African-American ancestor that had slaves. So I'm researching the reverse, but again, I have to question, why did they have slaves? They're not family members. Well, you know, typically that's how it's presented, that if blacks had slaves, they're going to be family members, keeping the family together. Well, no, that's not always the case. And then again, some people were trying to cheat the government and didn't keep as good of records like Thomas Jefferson did. <laughs> you know, yes. so you might yes. not get yes. yes. inventory yes. records or have legitimate yes. bill of sales. So you got a question to question and start looking again. There was a lot of value to the ancestors that were enslaved. Either it was yes. producing more, keeping the crops going, keeping the, the master going, or the skill that they were trained. So there's records, because mm-hmm. they always had to pay taxes. That's right. Well, we have a question coming um, mm-hmm. uh, online, uh, area code 615. Do you
2: have a question or a comment? I have a comment. Yeah. This is Canetta Alexander. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, Kanetta.: I want to thank Dr. Murphy. I participated in her Maggie class last year, and it was the basic methodology. Well, after 25 years, I was a little embarrassed to take the course. But Dr. Murphy still wears me out. She has made me look at a document. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I need it. I need it. I need that constant challenge that from one document, you should have at least 15 questions, even if it only has three lines. Who are they? Where are they? Where is this other person? How can I locate them? What other documents? Why is this? Now, when you were talking about Elijah Ramsey, why he was kept for two years, I just realized he was a tempster and a huckster. So he was a skilled slave. Hmm. Absolutely. But I have to open my mind continually. So thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate that. That was a challenge for all of us to
0: have to again, use the critical thinking skills, and that's why simply so what feels a little better when we're questioning that, and we'll remember that. You know, every time we come up on a document, okay, so what? I got it. You know, what do I got to do next? Yes. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I hope to see you in July. Oh, definitely. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much. But I like what she said, I mean, come up with 15 questions. Can you imagine 15 questions for every document that you, you pick up? Bernice, you, you will analyze that document. Yes, yes. we have yes. to, yes. we have yes. to analyze that record, pick it apart. Challenge ourselves to create that information to build and that's why we'll learn about building research plans because it's going to be from those questions from your timeline. You have to build the research plan to know where you're going, or where you're trying to get to. Other than that, again, we're just collecting papers. I know, and as we said in the beginning of the show, everybody loves the hunt, love the thrill of the hunt and doing happy dance. Yes. Then what? (laughs) Yes. Oh, now (laughs) we got (laughs) another one. (laughs) Then what? (laughs) From so what? (laughs) Then what? That's a they good are. one, Bernice, because you've got a good one. Oh, right, we're, we're going to tear it apart. I mean, we must tear this document apart, even finding your ancestors double counted in the census. Yeah. You need to start asking questions, even yeah. to the point of going back to the top of the census record and seeing what date did the, was the census documented. I because there that could that movement within, a, uh, yeah, there would be a, there could be movement in a four week period of time, Absolutely. and your ancestor could have moved from point A to point B, and it can be in another census in the same year, as different community. And I actually have, do that. have to, to ask the question. Oh, I have that too. I have. Yeah, that very interesting. Trying to determine my goal is to determine if this person actually served in the Civil War. They registered, mm-hmm. they were double counted in the 1860 census in their parents' house and also where they lived before he moved in with his parents. So, And they were adjacent counties, got a registration. I've narrowed it down to a two-year span where the information is missing on him. I had to come all the way forward to 1872 and then work back. You know, I documented everything that happened in his life. He got married, had a child. You know, they migrated to Michigan. But I'm trying to piece back now, when did they get married? Was it in Ohio? Was it in Michigan? Or was it en route to Michigan before he homesteaded? So it was literally piecing back each piece of information. Because I never even realized he was double counted in the census until... I had a double take thinking, wait a minute, did I just see another one? You know, and and had to yeah. relive that again and then print both of them out and say, wait a minute, there's two of them here, and it is the same person, you know, and, and went from there, but I was still questioning, why did this happen? I understood because the priest of property the father purchased in the census he was in, was where they all were living, and apparently he stayed behind, but it still, it was only, you know, a couple miles apart, but it was another county. So I'm down to two years trying to see if he actually served, because there's so many numerous with the same name, so I have to go through each one of them. And a lot of people don't want to do the work. That's the challenge to get to the thrill is going through the work and being able to share What you have done will help someone else go to that next level. So I love having the challenges to be able to share either in class or, you know, just with other fellow genealogists or people that just ask questions. You know, well, wait a minute. This is what happened to me. Here's an experience. This is what I did. Here's the process that I did. So it's a great opportunity to teach one, you know, and you're learning as well because they might have a different outlook on that to say, wait a minute, let me go back and redo this, and let me try what you did. So sharing is right. huge. It's huge. And we have a comment coming out of the chat, and this is from Angela. Uh, when an ancestor served in, in the Civil War, does anyone ask the question, how did he, you know, what, what happened? What are the circumstances that led him to serve? You know, many think that soldiers had to go up north to sign up to fight. It may be a whole nother reason, but uh-huh. that's where you need to start asking the question, how? Absolutely. So mm-hmm. we're doing so what, we're doing how, now we're doing then what? <laughs> and and why? why? Remember, Kanetta talks why? about why, and there's why. Yes. And you know what? We learned that in elementary school. It's older, not any different. We learn who, what, when, where and why in elementary school. That I, you know, I sometimes wonder reason. Huh? Right. Right. I sometimes wonder when I put my, my granddaughter in the car with me and <laughs> the entire why, but why? Yes. Why? And why? Well, but why? Yes. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know what, well, you need to be a genealogist, kid. You are asking questions. And then well, we have a question. The, okay. <laughs> and then yes. the, I was going to okay, say, the, a, the other thing is to step outside them. that box, too. Don't that's stay in right, the comfort zone. Right. Get out of that box. That's right. Well, we have a, a comment or okay. a question from Area Code 301. You're live, Area Code 301.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Angela. Hi, Bernice. I, I just wanted Hello, to say. Angela. I, hi, Angela. Oh, hi. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much for taking my call. I wanted to say that um, I definitely use the same example you were talking about like picking apart a, a document to find an ancestor, uh, the do- identification of an ancestor, and also I found another set of great-grandparents that way. So make a long story short, I had a maternal grandmother that talked about an ancestor, Caroline Burke. And I had no idea who she was. And for four years, I searched for Caroline Burke on the wrong side of the family mm-hmm. because she always talked about her in tandem with a maternal grandmother of my great-grandmother, Julia Dunn. So I searched her with the Dunn family with Julia and everything and couldn't find anything on her. So make a long story short. I said, let me start with Caroline Burke in that community see how many Caroline Burkes I can find. So I took a trip actually down to Charleston, South Carolina, to the library, and found three Caroline Burkes. So I took each one of those and found out where the, each one of them was buried, and I happened to find – now, this got complicated because two Caroline Burkes were on the same street, on Calhoun Street, a few blocks apart, and they were 20 years difference in age, and they were both mulatto women. Could they be related? I'm still trying to find that out. But then I found one Caroline Burke buried in my family cemetery, and the cemetery is very tiny. I went, oh, my God, could this be my Caroline Burke? All right, so then I found a will. I went to wills next to see if there are any Caroline Burke wills. But in 1869, I said to myself, couldn't be, because women didn't have wills in the 1860s in Charleston, South Carolina. It's absurd to even think that way, but I did it anyway, found the will of Caroline Burke. And in that will, I could hardly read the handwriting, but I took a magnifying glass and actually enhanced all of the words and transcribed the document and found out, bingo, first of all the three signatures in that will, one was John Dunn. Well, my family's surname was Dunn, okay, but I still didn't know if she was related to that person. But then she also left in in that will her accoutrements not only to her daughter and Adeline Bold, but to a Caroline Dunn. Oh my God! So what was right. the relationship now between that Dunn and the other Dunn? Yes. So to make a long story short, I didn't know how to start with John Dunn because I didn't know what age he was. I, I didn't know. I started with the with the child first, since I knew she was a child that she left that will to in case her daughter died. She would have been twelve. Okay, so I plugged her into the census, and bingo, John Dunn was her father. Ah. And I found out that she said this was her niece, and went, oh, I put it together, said that's got to be my great grandfather. But when I traced him, I found um, the son was my great. Well, let me see. So he was my great-great grandfather, and the son Charles Dunn that I had also been trying to search, and he was elusive. Happened to be the son. So that's how I found out who this Caroline Burke was, and it was on the paternal side and also found out that she had her own home-based business. She was a mantua maker. They were very rare during that time. She, it was one of the first home-based businesses in America for women. And uh, on Calhoun Street, which really takes this story a little bit further, the address of the library was 68 Calhoun Street, and her address was 48 Calhoun Street, and found out that her house once stood where that li- what that library was.
0: Oh, awesome. I'd like the example you're talking about, because you, exactly what we've been talking about is the challenging of keep asking questions, you know, because you had information, you wanted to distinguish between the two Berks, the two Carolines, and and you kept digging and digging until it presented itself. But if you wouldn't have used those critical thinking skills or just in investigative skills, uh, you know, tools or things, you might not have gotten there. So I appreciate you sharing that, you know, that others were here. You know, keep looking, keep searching, keep asking the questions. Right. And this is one of those conversations that we're having tonight that we need to have all the time. All of the time. Because, you know, we're always posting records on Facebook saying, oh, look what I found. The next person that does that, somebody please ask the question. So what? <laughs> I let's, agree with you. Let's tear, let's tear that record apart. Let's yes. ask the question, so what? And start putting that record in the context of what's going on in that community, what's going on in the lives of the people in that household. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're trying to do what you call that, an exhaustive search. We're trying yeah. to just make sure that it's in fact you know, we have what we want, and yeah. it's taking us to the next level. And Angela Martin, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, you know, Connecticut is saying proactive thinking. That must be continued. That is Absolutely. what we we're really talking about. Well, guess what? We're getting close to the end of the show. <laughs> And Aww. before we end the show, do we have any callers? Do you want to call in? you want to give an example? 646-200-0491. Uh, Dr. Shelley Murphy, do you have anything else you want to share with the uh, the listeners tonight? Well, just really just keep asking the questions. You know, I hope people get to experience Maggie that's coming up, the, the Midwest. Institute for African American Genealogy because these are the drills that we're going to go through and I think it's an excellent time. All of the facilitators enjoy it. They take part in it. You know, it might sound quirky, but you know what? We're digging. We're digging for information. We are digging for evidence. And so we can share that story. So I just hope people just keep the little thinking caps on and keep researching and have great success. And to please share the success when they get it. Thank you so very much. And I I have fun watching everybody with the paper across the wall and asking the questions. So what? Oh, it's just wonderful. So everyone, keep the. Keep the thoughts going. Keep asking the questions. That's where you're really going to get to the, the true story about your ancestors in the community. Well, I want everyone to, oh, please join me next week. Have you read the book Ebony and Ivy? Oh, you probably want to consider reading this book. This is a book written by Craig Stephen Wilder. And the title again is uh, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery in the Troubled History of America's Universities. This is a powerful and propulsive study and the first of its kind that's revealing the history of oppression behind institutions usually considered. The Cradle of uh, Liberal Politics, okay? So please join me next week for a discussion with Craig Steven Wilder. So good night, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much, Dr. Shelley Mercy. And I want you to remember your ancestors left footprints, footprints that would make you say so much. That's right. (laughs) Therefore, you shall follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages. And remember, everybody, we are asking those questions. Now, you put up your document, you're going to get the next question. So what? Remember, everyone, to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walt Roger tomorrow and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoine and Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Bennett, Babies Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www. JanieBroots.com. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night. Have a good evening, everyone. Bye-bye. Good night.